Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, episode number 83 on Friday, May 23rd, 2008. My name is Cliff Slotnick, or the Z-Man, and here with me in Studio B in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania, is the wingman, Chris Boisel. Good afternoon, Cliff. Hey, you're close today. My co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, and our technical director, Dr. Dieter Wiles, will be participating remotely from St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Our goals at IEQ Radio are to be interesting, informative, and entertaining. On IEQ Radio, you'll hear the news, the views, and the opinions of the hosts and our guests. You can contact me at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. You can contact Radio Joe Hughes by emailing to him at joe.use at iaqtraining.com. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with our guest Jason Prinsenthal, and our traditional roundup at the end of the show. We'd like to thank today's sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. DryEase Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. In order to contact this show, either live or by phone or text message, simply go to www.talkshoe.com website and follow directions to obtain a PIN number. Our show ID number is 1547. It's 1547. We appreciate suggestions. We'll answer your questions and even take requests if you email us at info at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IEQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Monday, May 26th is Memorial Day, a United States federal holiday that is observed on the last Monday of May, formerly known as Decoration Day. This holiday commemorates U.S. men and women who have died in military service to their country. It began first to honor Union soldiers who died during the American Civil War. After World War I, it was expanded to include those who died in any war military action. We want to pause now for a musical tribute to those who have fallen in service to our country.
Okay, and now for the micro bin trivia question. We're sorry to report there were no correct answers to last week's trivia question. This week's trivia question for May 23, 2008 is a two-part trivia question. The winner will need to provide both correct answers. Part one, what linguistic blend of words coined in the 1950s to describe the mixture of smog, whoops, I just gave the first part of the answer. What linguistic blend of words coined in the 1950s to describe the mixture of smoke and fog experienced in London? So the first part of the question, smog. We're looking for part two. We seek the linguistic blend of words coined to describe the combination of volcanic gases reacting with sunlight, oxygen, and moisture. The term is most often applied to the island of Hawaii where the Kalaua volcano emits an estimated 2,000 tons of the substance per day. What is that substance called? Okay. Today's IQ Radio featured guest is Jason Prinsenthal. Jason studied chemistry at Penn State and microbiology at the University of Hawaii. Jason worked in the chemical field managing sales forces selling cleaning and sanitation products throughout Hawaii and the Pacific Rim. Jason holds industry certifications as a certified mechanical hygienist, a certified air systems cleaning specialist, and is a registered contractor mold manager. A pioneer in the indoor air quality field since 1986, Jason used his work experience in the chemical and sanitation field to find and implement alternatives to the removal and replacement of internally lined HVAC systems and his ductwork, saving his clients significant time and money. The ability to correct musty odors, mold problems, and poor IEQ in Hawaii's buildings and homes has provided Jason with many business opportunities. He is sought out and considered a go-to expert in Hawaii in all aspects of indoor air quality and fungal contamination issues. He is highly visible to the community by means of educational presentations and speaking engagements. He's been a trainer for CIE courses, a BOMA modular education trainer, and consistently attends both national and international IEQ conferences annually. Most importantly, he is a not He's a nonconformist in the IAQ arena. He knows what works and what doesn't work in regard to remediation guidelines, and he uses both conventional and unconventional approaches to resolve microbial contamination issues. His objective is to make sure his clients in the community at large don't get caught up in the high costs associated with following inexperienced, unethical, and profiteering mold diggers. Jason has successfully completed many high-profile projects in schools, libraries, hospitals, military bases, and office buildings in California, Hawaii, Guam, and American Samoa. Uh, we have some music for him, Chris. Aloha, Jason. Greetings. Hey, aloha. Kaniala. How are you? All right. Hey, you know, I was looking for that song, by the way. I was actually going to play that. Were you? 
Yeah, I was looking all through my iTunes for the, the Hawaii Five O song, but uh, you beat me to the punch. That's pretty good. Well, at the end of it, we always try to post the show, so we'll give you the the, the link and the information where you can find it. Well, let's talk. Okay. A, well, let's talk a little bit about how you went from chemistry and microbiology studies at school and uh, went into the chemical business. How did that influence your approach to microbial remediation? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, like a lot of us, I mean, I, I didn't know that I was going to get into the, the, the indoor air quality arena. It kind of uh, uh, sparked my interest, actually. Um, you know, I'm originally from the East Coast. I've moved, moved out to Hawaii with my parents uh, at uh, the age of 12, but being that I had uh, relatives and I thought at the time I wanted to get away after high school, um, that's what brought me back to the East Coast. Um, um, and um, um, from that, um, I, I guess uh, I realized I, I, I definitely wanted to come back to Hawaii. So when I came back to Hawaii, um, uh, you know, like a young guy, I didn't know what the heck to do and, um, you know, got involved in um, uh, several things, even sold cars just because I got a demo car and, uh, and then found my um, uh, first real job, I guess, working for uh, Echo Labs here and uh, worked, um, you know, in the hospitality arena, which uh, is the big predominant industry here, hotels, uh, and the uh, majority of my clients were hotels. So um, for the next five years, I went through several different companies and then uh, got the entrepreneur itch. And uh, why I was on the East Coast was when uh, actually the Legionella issue broke out in Philadelphia. Uh, I was also a Philadelphia Flyers fan, believe it or not, too, one of the few that uh, <laughs> lived in Hawaii. Uh, and um, uh, hence, that's what sparked my interest. Um, and being in the chemical in industry, I've, uh, you know, with those companies, it was sanitation and, and, and cleaning. And uh, with my background, um, uh, you know, I've always wanted to know why. I'm a scientist, I guess, by heart. And uh, for me, I always um, uh, am in the, uh, in the position to always ask questions. Uh, if somebody says it can't be done, I want to know why. If uh, somebody says this is the best thing, I want to see if there's something better. So it's, it's probably, you know, my, uh, my MO, so to speak. Would you agree or disagree with the statement that chemistry solutions offer better remediation? Uh, you know, um, I would say when I first got into this field, uh, field it was uh, probably yes. Um, you know, um, people, uh, back today, people still uh, think that addressing um, microorganisms is about killing mold. Um, uh, and certainly I went through that phase myself. Um, now I'm uh, um, more of a, um, I, I guess, more of an environmentalist, if you will, realizing um, uh, from uh, just my uh, background that uh, uh, biocides and disinfectants um, uh, aren't completely safe, uh, and uh, they're designed to kill uh, living organisms, which hence mean that uh, perhaps that sometimes uh, people, including myself in the past, have probably used things that were in some sense more toxic than actually what we were trying to um, resolve or eliminate, which, you know, if we're talking mold, uh, then we're talking mold. But you know, every case has its um, 
has its beast, so to speak. You know, in getting ready for the program, we had a couple of chats, and you know, during our chats, you used a couple of interesting terms, and I was going to ask you to define them if I could. You know, one of the okay. terms one of the terms that you used was a newbie. What what what's a newbie in the IAQ or mold remediation field? Well, um, and I'm sure you know you've you've seen this as well as I have, and uh, it's I guess part of maturing in the field and, and getting involved. But when I got into this field probably like you, um, there weren't many people that really cared about indoor air quality. Um, I used to get the issue of, uh, gee, uh, uh, we don't need to do anything because it's unregulated and we're only going to do something if it's a problem and so forth and so on. Now with the explosion, particularly thanks to, um, I would think, uh, mold in general in the last uh, six to eight years, um, you know, everybody's coming out of the woodwork. Uh, you know, everybody's an expert. Uh, carpet cleaners are now mold experts. Uh, asbestos guys are mold experts. Uh, uh, I'll even go as far as CIHs think they're mold experts a lot of times. And uh, uh, the, the, the actual field I, I found to be extremely complex. The only problem was is the rest of the science community never gave uh, indoor air quality the, the, the the, the, the respect, if you will, of the complexity of the field. And uh, there's a lot of people that continue to feel that way. So newbies are people that just jump in and um, um, I think uh, don't really have a passion for the field and um, uh, are out there to uh, capitalize on, um, on, on, the, uh, on the field in general, just like how asbestos was. What's a mold digger? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much the same thing. Okay. I mean, I... Uh, you know, I uh, I use a lot of humor myself. I, I a lot of people say I should have been a stand-up comic, but um, I uh, uh, it's uh, obviously a pun from uh, from Gold Digger. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mold is gold. We've all heard that. Um, uh, I, I only have uh, you know from my own life experiences and in, in, in dealing with people uh, even in my own uh, uh, hometown, so to speak, that uh, you know people. Uh, like everywhere else, I'm sure, have varying degrees. The, the field is, by large, uh, a lot of opinions. And um, uh, the only problem is that some people out there aren't thinkers and don't, um, uh, don't really, um, uh, they're not really out there, if you will, to, uh, to, to do justice to their clients and to the field. I've got kind a question. Like vinyl, the old vinyl siding guys, you know. No, no problem. They move from vinyl siding to indoor microbial remediation. I can understand that. That's right. In fact, there's even some of those that have become mold experts, so to speak. Actually, I've got a question from a guest before we move on. The question is, does Jason not use antimicrobials at all now, or do you just use them in a different way? Uh, I've, I've used them in a different way. I mean, I've... Um, uh, I look at this field uh, just kind of like uh, uh, any uh, practitioner of any profession. Uh, for me, it's um, looking at the situation, uh, understanding my client, under, uh, understanding the risk involved uh, depending on the circumstances, and then uh, providing accordingly um, based on my expertise and experience what can work and what can't work for that client. You know, now when we're talking about mold, um, we're really talking about uh, usually the driver's health and exposure issues. Uh, certainly degradation of building materials is part of the question too, but um, the, the, the real driver of mold and even indoor air quality for even as long as I have been has been mostly litigation that's gotten um, people's attention. 
just like uh, a lot of things do. So, and that's why you see uh, varying people now um, who couldn't have really cared less about this field uh, probably five to ten years ago, whether they're lawyers or or other people now taking attention to this field. Some of them in part because uh, there is money into it, and we can't uh, uh, shade over that. I mean, there are, there's always going to be capitalistic uh, intent to uh, some people. And then there's the marriage of both, you know, being able to provide um, um, uh, um, uh, expertise uh, in this arena and um, also be uh, a partner to your client by controlling costs and minimizing issues. So, yes, I mean, microbial um, coatings, I was probably one of the first people in Hawaii back in the early 90s to start using Foster 4020 uh, in those types of products. Uh, I think that was the, the, the first product out there and uh, found to be uh, extremely useful in uh, addressing um, odors and microbial issues within uh, internally lined ducts. Prior to that, I was using my chemistry background and my um, experience in cleaning and uh, restoration to, uh, to um, use alternative methods instead of simply replacing the ductwork, which is what the industry was saying that could only be done with lined ductwork at the time. Right. Do you like to work solo? A lot of CIHs and what I would call specifiers like to work solo, and they really don't ask anyone for cooperation or guidance. If you're doing a microbial remediation protocol or working on a disaster restoration site, do you prefer to work alone, or do you believe in cooperation with others? Well, um, cooperation is, is certainly a must. Um, Sometimes the problem is, is uh, depending on where your project is and who's involved, is um, uh, more importantly, who can you work with and who has the right um, and, and same focus as you do. Um, uh, there, even in my market, there's a lot of um, different types of disciplines. You know, from CIHs to mechanical engineers to contractors that I usually consistently work with. Um, but again, I, I look at each project case by case. I'm, I'm not going to and will never pigeonhole myself um, to, um, to a certain way of doing things because, um, you know, as I evolved, I evolved into this industry trying to solve problems for my clients. And to this day, there's a lot of them are still my clients and even even more so. So... Uh, we have, um, particularly when I'm talking about my experience here in Hawaii, um, you know, we have a finite amount of land, finite amount of buildings. Um, and um, when you develop a partnership with your client, depending on what that partnership is, in my case, um, uh, an indoor air quality specialist, somebody who manages problems for their buildings, um, we respond accordingly, whether it's in-house, whether it's bringing people in, um, all that, again, is weighed on what kind of risk. If there's a lot of risk and litigation involved, certainly I bring in um, other disciplines or people similar to me or CIHs or whoever, it depends. But to try to, to always say that every time there's a mold problem, you need to come in and do tests and need a IEP and all XYZ and all this, uh, I think is just um, impractical. You know, it's... It, it, it's it's almost like nobody wants risk. Everybody passes that risk on. You know, that's why attorneys are a, a lot of times involved as well. So uh, it becomes a layer of cost that uh, uh, sometimes, and in most cases that I see, is not, um, not really needed.
You know, speaking of risk, um, do you have any opinion on who should bear the risk and responsibility for a microbial remediation protocol? Should it be the, the specifier? Should it be the remediator? Should, you know, the, the risk be shared? Um, I think um, I think who's ever in charge of that job should be responsible. And um, the the problem I, I've seen, and again, I'm uh, like like a lot of us, we have our inner circle of experience. Uh, so I'm only judging this from my experience. Um, and quite frankly, that's my biggest asset is that that experience. Like a lot of us that have been in this field. Um, I find that uh, a lot of times um, a lot of professionals, um, uh, whether they're CIHs or other uh, certifications or designations, uh, if you read the very fine print, uh, don't re take any responsibility on. Uh, I've seen it with drying contractors. I've seen it with uh, um, industrial hygienists. I've seen it with uh, uh, other disciplines that go in and um, um, do provide a service that client's hiring them, obviously to to pass the risk on to that 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 professional. And if somebody's not willing to take the risk, they need to get out of the field. In my opinion, that's that's an interesting perspective. You know, in getting ready for the interview, you mentioned a term that I'd never heard before. It was VOG or V O G. What is it, and why is it important? Well, it's probably part of your trivia question, isn't it, as far as the component in that law? It might be, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't answer it, uh, but I know the answer. Um, uh, if uh, anybody um, is familiar with uh, my home and my state um, on the island of Hawaii, which is also referred to as the Big Island, uh, we've had a continual, uh, actually, we've had a continual volcanic eruption since um, actually on the year I was married, 19, 1984. Uh, this uh, eruption has been going on continuously, and we've had uh, episodes of VOG in the past, but is what's really causing um, a bit of havoc and uh, what I feel is a, a real health issue here in Hawaii is um, the latest uh, area which has erupted, a uh, crater called Hale Maumau, which is actually the main crater of the uh, Kilauea uh, rift area of uh, of the Volcano National Park, had opened up about, I would say, three months ago and has continuously spewed um, um, the secret stuff that you're, you're looking for <laughs> in the trivia question, as well as uh, what I also am really always been focused on is uh, respirable particles. Um, and uh, the respirable particles, for instance, um, uh, just because I do a lot of you know, surveys and uh, assessments, um, particle counts are uh, 10 to 20-fold higher than they normally are outdoors now. Uh, and they're usually 8 to 10 uh, times higher indoors, and that obviously is a variable depending on you know, HVAC maintenance and uh, filtration and so forth and so on. And, of course, uh, as my buddy uh, Dr. Joe says, uh, whether a building sucks or blows. Right. You know, we've got a lot of buildings that suck here. So <laughs> so they're bringing in this stuff. Well, I was just going to ask you, I think that, you know, maybe ASHRAE may not apply, you know, some of their standards and recommendations may not apply to Hawaii if the outside air is, is heavily contaminated. Right, right. Uh, it, 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 it's very contaminated. Uh, it's... Uh, it's got a lot of uh, different pollutants. Um, 
I mean, uh, generally, I mean, our air is just full of moisture, which creates its own problem with with, with mold issues. Actually, but, uh, uh, we we've got a question from a listener, and I'm not sure if you know the answer to this, but what would the normal levels in your area be for respirable particles? Uh, outdoors or indoors? Uh, both, if you know. Uh, well, I mean, most of my, um, uh, I mean, I, I think normalcy in indoors has a lot of variables, as we know, you know. Oh, out, outdoors issues. is what he's looking for, outdoors. Oh, outdoors, outdoors. Um, again, it depends on where you are. I mean, if you're in downtown Honolulu, it's higher, obviously, than if you're out sometimes in the country. But then our particle levels depend on how the wind blows and which way it blows. Uh, right now it's blowing south, so we're getting the fog elevated levels. Normal levels uh, run about uh, about 4,300 uh, micrograms per cubic meter, probably. Okay. Thank you. Um, ask, actually, I've got a, a guest or a question from one of the listeners. I'm going to tie it into one of the questions that I had prepared, and it really deals with industry guidelines and, and standards. I guess, first of all, do you have a preference on industry guidance documents? Is there one that you like, one that you don't like? They're all good. They're all bad. Um, no, I think all of them. Uh, see, the part uh, what I what I hear when I hear guidelines is just that they're guidelines. They're not standards. They're not. Um, they're there to absorb as a professional, and then it deciphers down to your opinion on a case by case basis. Um, you know, I've uh, obviously followed and uh, have read since the conception of the, the New York Department of Health guideline for mold um, assessment and remediation. Um, I also happen to like the EPA guideline. I think the EPA guideline is probably um, uh, the most um, uh, referred one that I tell people to refer to because it's a, um, a government site. It, um, um, it will probably more than likely hold up best in a court of law if there is litigation to, uh, to point to. And it's uh, common sense and it's consumer friendly. I think uh, we all deal with clients that um, really don't know about our field. Uh, they're looking for us for guidance. They're looking for us to point them in the right direction. And oh, by the way, even though they don't say it, they want to not spend uh, an arm and a leg on this. And uh, that's what I've always been committed to, is finding uh, ways to take their situation and um, form a response uh, to what their needs are. I think that what I want to do is tie this question from a listener in. The question is, do you ever do post-remediation verification on your own products, projects? I'm sorry. If so, what do you call it since S520 says that it can only be done by an IEP? So essentially, some of these documents require, I guess, what we could call robotic compliance. Absolutely. And uh, I, uh, I'm, uh, like you introduced me, I, I, you know, if, if, if other people want to practice that way, that's their prior, prerogative. Um, uh, for me, uh, it makes sense when it makes sense. Um, uh, if, if it's a very simple no-brainer issue, uh, then, um, then a lot of times uh, I don't really uh, suggest to do any sampling. I mean, uh, uh, for me, it's just an added cost. Now, um, if, if the circumstances are where it's a, a major issue and there's a, a complaints about health and uh, it's a high-profile issue, you address that situation accordingly. 
uh, certainly we will take our own samples because we need to know it's our way of quality control. Um, but then again, you also have to understand how to read those samples, which is another problem in the field. A lot of people don't know how to interpret the samples once they get them. Okay. I've got another question for you, and then what I'm going to do is I'll bring in Joe and Dieter because by that time we'll – uh, be approximately uh, halfway through. What I'd like you to do, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your role in the Halle Koa Hotel litigation in 1999? Yeah. Um, well, th this was one of those issues that was very similar to the famous Hilton uh, mold issue. Well, uh, in fact, in some ways, that that issue was, I, uh, I think, worse than even the Hilton issue was. Um, I was actually brought in, uh, or my company and, and me in particular, was brought in uh, and worked with a team of uh, other experts uh, as a counter response to a, um, a litigation of mold uh, on a brand new tower. Now, the Holicoa Hotel, uh, for the listeners, is in Waikiki. It's a military hotel uh, exclusively for uh, military personnel, a uh, beautiful hotel, actually. And um, uh, they had just built a new tower uh, within several months after it was built. Um, uh, of course, back in 1999, mold was really an odor problem, not so much a health issue. It was starting to become a health issue in, in the media attention, and clearly, you know, was anyhow. And um, uh, we were uh, we we were brought in to, uh, like I said, uh, counter uh, the response from uh, the Army Corps of Engineering. Uh, as to uh, the issues of why the rooms were moldy. Um, like most cases, uh, when, when it comes to these issues, including the Hilton, you know, it always seems to always point to the mechanical systems. And the argument uh, was, at the time uh, when we got involved, was is that the fan coil and the uh, uh, exhaust system uh, were improperly installed, allowing uh, uh, the ductwork to, to draw air in through the wall cavities. Um, it also had vinyl wall covering, which is a big no-no, mm -hmm. and caused uh, apparently mold to start developing within the walls and coming out through the wall covering. Um, uh, it was a very um, uh, big issue for the uh, mechanical contractor. In fact, uh, they were uh, probably poised to go out of business because they were underinsured and they were being, uh, I believe, uh, sued or the response was going to be $20 million to solve the problem, according to the Army Corps of Engineering's uh, consultants who came in from the mainland. Um, so we went in and we disproved the fact because um, we actually found that one side of the wall had just as much mold growth within that wall cavity as the other, meaning that the wall that the fan coil was on or the slave wall uh, would have been the, the, the actual wall that was uh, affected due to the negative pressure in that uh, in, in the ductwork uh, within those walls. Uh, but the other wall was a uh, structural wall. And uh, we found that actually both walls had equally or more mold you know, within them uh, than actually the slave wall, thereby reducing the uh, uh, claim down uh, significantly. And uh, this air conditioning company is in business today, um, uh, I think uh, in part because of uh, the team that I was on, the findings that we had. That's great work. I think what we're going to do now is, it's kind of halftime, what I'm going to do is bring in Joe and Dieter and ask them to either ask some questions or comment on the, the show to this 
you know, to this point. So, Chris, take your choice. Bring one of them in, then we'll bring in the other. Okay. I think you're both on, gentlemen. Hello, Jason. This is Joe. Hey, Joe. How are you Thanks doing? Thanks for joining us. My Make pleasure. A little, little background noise. There's a backhoe that pulled up right <laughs> just as we started the show outside of the hotel here, but that'll happen. I, I have a question on, um, on water damage restoration. And, sure. and I'm curious if you do, do you perform water damage restoration or do consulting on water damage restoration projects? Um, uh, we, we don't, we're not a first response company. Uh, in other words, um, what we do are, is we provide a um, non-cost agreement or contract with um, our clients uh, that we will respond to them. I've gotten them, or at least my clients, to uh, bring in their preferred flood extractor to simply suck the water out and not to give them any latitude, I guess, on the drying until we show up on the job. So a lot of times we'll end up managing it um, uh, from, the, from the initial response uh, as a mold prevention measure as well as a cost uh, uh, reduction measure. Um, in most cases, uh, I, I, you know, uh, just because the varying practices of each uh, extractor is and the, the, the way the, the, the business model continues to set up. And I think um, when, when uh, I was in, um, uh, where was it, Orlando last week, uh, where, where Cliff and I saw each other, um, uh, you know, the, the field is slowly moving to a different pattern. But right now, you know, the flood guys, what they want to do is usually get their equipment in and start the meter running. Uh, in most cases, I see where most of these flood contractors most of the time don't even use their equipment to the, um, to the expectations or the capabilities that the equipment can provide, therefore charging the insurance company or the client considerably more than really has to uh, for these type of jobs. So, um, uh, and then there's been other times, I mean, you know, uh, you know, I have uh, uh, IAQ technicians here that um, uh, if it's a small enough claim, if, uh, if it's a little room, it's a good client of ours that we've had for 20 years, um, you know, we'll go down and clean it up for them. I mean, it, it's really, to me, about customer service. We, we, we can't, we're, we're business people, and uh, we want to make money, but uh, good business people all want, also want to provide the best service for their clients with their, with their best capabilities. And uh, so I continue to go back to it's always case by case with us, always depending on, on what's going on and, uh, um, and um, what's going to be best um, for our clients to respond and how to respond or how to manage that client. I'm curious on um, sewage backups. Uh -huh. you, I'm, I'm assuming you help your clients with determining when a project is completed on a, on a sewage backup. Do you do any kind of uh, analytical testing after a sewage backup? Uh, do you have any protocol you follow, or do you just use a visual inspection and make sure that everything is cleaned up properly? Well, I guess it depends on what um, what the now, a lot of times I also come in the backside where something's been done and they want us to verify the performance of, say, um, uh, the response company that came in to clean, clean the sewage. Um, uh, you know, and a lot of the, uh, what I would consider the, the, the flood guys that I've worked with hand-in-hand -hand for years here that I consider uh, to be very 
expertise in their field um, generally know what to do based on that response. Um, uh, you know, if you're talking about a dribble out of a toilet that happens to wet a little piece of carpet, um, is obviously a lot different than a, a sewage backup that floods a whole entire house. You know, the dose makes the poison, um, like we we all know. And um, if if the severity of the contamination justifies um, a lot of different angles uh, and uh, response, uh, namely clearancing and things like that, then absolutely. Um, because obviously we, we're dealing with a, a much more usually um, dangerous situation um, because of just the bacterial contamination and uh, the high risk of it. Um, sampling certainly um, is, is uh, appropriate, uh, usually surface sampling uh, for your, your uh, typical uh, bacterial uh, issues that uh, would be in those types of situations. But then again, I mean, I've walked into cases where flood, uh, sewage flood had occurred, uh, completely dried up, and then you're obviously dealing with somewhat of a different animal at that point because um, sewage floods are usually the most dangerous when there's sewage laying around and when there's fluid. Uh, once things dried up, uh, the, 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 the potential risk significantly, you know, goes under. Okay, let me uh, turn it over to Dr. Wilds. And I don't know if that answered your question, by the way. Well, because to me, it's not a yes or no, or it's, that's a problem in our field. There's no yes or no's, I mean, uh, to me, um, or at least that's how I practice this field. It's... Uh, it's really based on what your objectives are um, and what what the client needs and wants based on the situation. Yeah, I've I've seen you know no equal live being you know one standard uh, no no coliforms you know and then there's the mug test and I was just curious if you had worked with any of those. Yeah. Uh, oh uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean we're we're not. I mean it depends if. You, if you're coming behind somebody who's supposedly thoroughly cleaned and sanitized something, then, then the appropriate response is a surface sample. Um, uh, but that, that surface sample also has to be done um, uh, in a timely manner to, to get those, um, those appropriate um, results, whether they're... Uh, and what we like to do is also work with the contractor, too. Um, I find in this field there's far too many of this... Um, uh, non, um, uh, you know, this conflict of interest thing has gone a little too far, in my opinion, uh, in, in most cases, uh, you know, and again, it depends on the case, but I think a consultant should be working with the restoration contractor to come up with the end result of getting in and out and get that place safe and, and get it done cost-effectively instead of this, uh, well, you do what you want and we'll come and test and then if it doesn't pass, we'll will uh, will fail you so we can make more money to test more and charge the client more. Um, uh, I'm firmly against that kind of response. And so, again, um, it's my preference, my opinion, but it's worked for me and uh, continues to work for me, and I think it's the, the just way to deal with this type of stuff. Okay, I'm going to turn it over to uh, our technical director. We're sharing a phone, and he's a, a second or two behind on the time delay here, but uh, more like 30 seconds, he said. But I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Wall and see if he has a question or comment. Yeah, hi, Jason. Good afternoon. Or for, the, for you, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Uh, I have one quick question. I think I may have misunderstood when we talked about particulate matter. I have two questions. 
transferable or respirable particulate matter. I heard 4,300 micrograms. I think that should be 43,000. 43, I'm sorry. How much? It would be 43,000. Did I say 4,300? 43,000. Wow, that, that sounds high. I mean, that's 43,000 milligrams per cubic meter. Right. Yeah, that's 43 milligrams. But anyway, maybe we figure that one out. That doesn't matter. I think a, a, a more important thing right now, this one we can, we can figure out easily. But I think the other big problem that you pointed out, and I have been working with that for my whole professional life, is ventilation and ventilation design. And mm -hmm. you mentioned it in the Hilton Towers over there, where somebody designed a or installed a ventilation system and uh, apparently didn't quite know or understand where the makeup air was coming from and where the exhaust um, volume of air is going to. And that is obviously, and we see it here uh, quite clearly, it is obviously of utmost importance. And I have been teaching that to my students and tell this to everybody. If we suck air out, we got to make it up somewhere. Yeah, what goes out got to come in. Come somehow. in, exactly. And you better know where it is coming from and where it is going. Right. If you don't pay attention to that, you can run into trouble, and particularly in an environment like, well, where Joe and I are here in St. Croix, St. Thomas, and the Virgin Island areas, area, which is uh -huh. not very different from what we experience in Hawaii. Right, so and, and actually you probably have even more moisture on a consistent yeah. basis than we do. And it behooves you to, you know, know which building to air condition, and once you do that, how to air condition it and do it wisely and appropriately. Yeah, you're right. In fact, you know, when I, you know back in the early 90s here, um, you know, when everybody thought the way to control mold was to make it cold, uh, they created a big problem. They started oh, oversizing air handlers and fan coils. Yeah. And um, and then the, the the humidity wouldn't cycle out, and then people would start getting smells, and then they'd double the problem by uh, by consistently running their AC 24/7. And the uh, majority of our systems here are chilled water. And then anytime you know um, some new engineer comes in uh, to try to make a name for himself by cutting costs, he increases the chilled water temperature, and then it creates even more of a problem. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, we we landed a couple of days ago in uh, St. Thomas, and there's the airport, the new airport, which I didn't recognize the last time I was here was 25 years ago or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, somebody was wise. There is no air conditioning. It's open on all four sides, northwest, east, and, and south. In other words, by and large, the outside temperature is more or less uh, the inside temperature. It's a little bit exactly. cooler over there. And that is a wise thing to do. I personally didn't really like it because I like air conditioning and cool temperatures. Right. Who am I to tell those people over there? They avoided any mold problems or moisture problems and then mold problems. Right, exactly. Well, and see, a lot of people end up inheriting this problem. You know, the hotels, for instance, and uh, I like to use hotels because that's what I'm uh, – most familiar with. That's where I started my career solving um, back when I started. Again, it was more of an odors issue. They didn't want the musty smell. Nobody was really uh, focused on health issues other than... Not very pleasant anyway. What's that? 
Is that not very pleasant anyway? No, it's not, especially especially in these high-end properties where you're paying $300 a night or, or, or more. Right. But um, what I found um, initially, and I, I continue to, you know, constantly educate myself in this field. I'm not a mechanical engineer. A lot of, a lot of building science issues obviously have been self-taught. Um, um, by you know, I, I've self-taught myself, and just by wanting to be the best in my my field for my client, just like many people. I mean, us old timers in this field aren't privy to this being. Uh, it's now being a field. The newer people, such as my kids, um, uh, you know, this will be a field. There's college courses being taught on it. People will actually get education for building science. You know, what a novel concept. Um, uh, which I think is great, but for, 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 for me doing this for a long time, I had to learn trial and error, understand what, what works and what doesn't work. And, um, um, I, you know, everybody's so focused on relative humidity and for years, and, and, and certainly there's, there's a reason to be focused on relative humidity, but I've always told my clients that just relative humidity in itself doesn't create a mold problem. You know, because you can always tweak things. Uh, you can always deal with problems internally. I, I, I had a hotel that, in their, in, their, in their way to prevent and promote good service, they would go in and clean carpets and bonnet the carpets every time somebody would check in and out, adding water to the rooms. They'd had, car they'd had drapes that were thick um, that would um, never get dry, and that's just why their rooms smelled. So... What we did, since we knew that they were going to, weren't going to spend millions of dollars to replace their fan coil systems uh, and deal with engineering issues, is we started focusing on the rooms um, uh, to make them so-called mold-proof, if you will, by minimizing the, the surfaces that would promote growth and create the smells. You know, kind of a kind of a, a, a backdoor approach to solving mold problems, but. Um, in, in a lot of cases, it would work or buy time for the client uh, in between renovations so they could appropriately deal with the science and engineering side. Um, but it always, doesn't, it always doesn't take an engineering side. I mean, a lot of people think they can engineer mold out of a building, and, and that's impossible. You know, once you have mold growing, you can't get rid of it by lowering humidity. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, another thing is also, I mean, why we have, I don't want to say problems, but issues. Is, you know, our buildings are becoming more and more complex. You know, we were asked, yeah, can you do this and this? Can you add air conditioning? He said, yeah, we can. Now, in the old days, you built a, a house somewhere where you had some natural shade, you had a tree around it, or something like this. Air conditioning didn't, uh, air conditioning didn't uh, uh, exist. Right. It really didn't. You know, and the, the, the buildings were breathing naturally with what we were using to build them. Now, you know, all of a sudden it becomes more and more and more sophisticated. Hey, I want to have this, I want to have that. Then we have certain systems in one house, and all of a sudden they all have to work together and not against each other, which Absolutely. is an engineering problem. And uh, so that is where a lot of problems started all of a sudden. Absolutely, Before I agree. I, uh, I hold agree. more time over here, I uh, send it back to Cliff over there and uh, let's see whether other people have other questions and uh, we have a little time uh, later on during the roundup. Absolutely. Uh, 
Nice talking with you. Oh, good talking to you, Jason. Pleasure. Okay, let's let's change pace a little bit, Jason. Do you have any IAQ indoor air quality heroes? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, mentors of mine have been uh, uh, Thad Goolish, um, um, Phil Morey, Richard Shaughnessy, uh, uh, Joe Stebrick. I mean, all of uh, these people I've uh, gotten to know over the course of the years. Actually, I take that back. I've only met Thad once, uh, but he was um, um, probably some of the first readings of IAQ I did back in the uh, early 80s. uh, so, um, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, they've all, um, and what they've done, um, have all somewhat derived me. I mean, they might not all agree with me now, <laughs> but, but at the same time, I mean, uh, everybody has value, um, uh, um, uh, and everybody's, uh, just like any other teacher, you, you take what you take with it and then you kind of develop your own, um, um, system and way, so to speak. But uh, absolutely, they, uh, they've uh, molded me, so to speak. Okay, let's, let's change pace again. Do you find that most indoor environmental professionals or conformists that think alike, investigate alike, and even specify and testify alike? If so, why? Um, well, I, I guess the real uh, question I would have to ask is, um, are we talking IAP as in somebody who um, uh, is um, uh, simply an IAP or somebody um, um, who is um, uh, coming out of a, a different science or other arena to become an IAP? I would think no. Those that are those that are coming primarily out of some other background to be an IEP, like like you did. You came out of the chemical field. I came out of the cleaning and chemical field. Other people might have come out of asbestos abatement or HVAC system cleaning. Um, I find well, and I only again I'm talking about my experience. Um, uh, I find that majority of of, of of them unless they've been around for a while uh, and I don't even know what that defined of being around for a while is is it five years, ten years um, uh, I, I don't like IAPs uh, that pretend to be IAPs and it doesn't matter if they're actually CIHs or PhDs and I've run into them all and uh, uh, they tend to use their uh, credential first Thinking that that is um, um, uh, what's, the, what's the word I want to use without being um, too too crass, um, they don't think out of the box. For instance, uh, and, and I'm not, uh, I know some awesome CIHs that are in this field, um, but usually the CIHs that are in this field, this is what they do for a living: indoor air quality. They live and breathe it. Uh, the ones I have problems with are usually the IAPs. Who dabble in IAQ and don't don't uh, don't have any real clue about indoor air quality other than just textbook, unreal life experience. Um, uh, example I'll give you, and I, I I won't name names, but I've had several instances where I've had to be on projects either as a second opinion uh, to an IAP or CIHs that come in from the mainland. And they actually practice 
no different than if they were in New York and coming to Hawaii, um, whether it's reading sport trap samples or their views and opinions. And to me, those people are the people who uh, really need to uh, to rethink and reconform in their way. So um, for me, I, I have a problem with those type of people because they, 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 they're largely in it and have largely been in it uh, for rather a short time, most of them. And, um, I, you know, for me, and this is my opinion too, I think um, uh, even industrial hygienists for the most part, AIHA, um, I remember the time when these organizations really didn't do anything in the indoor air quality arena. Um, uh, it seemed like everybody started getting involved um, in more and more uh, attention to indoor air quality, in particular mold. And then suddenly now uh, these organizations are trying to position themselves to be the go-to people. Uh, you know, I have that issue here in Hawaii. I mean, I have some attorneys who think that that they need to have a CIH to deal with a lawsuit, uh, which I think is a very reckless view. Um, it's not it's not the credential, you know, at least not yet in our day and our life right now. It, it, it's certainly a barometer of somebody's, um, educational background, but just because I might be a PhD doesn't mean that I know building science and I know mold and I know ventilation systems. And um, it's got to be a, a, a two-fold approach, science versus, re- or three-fold, science, real life, and what's at hand to come up with those conclusions and not some textbook response. And uh, I find that to be um, um, uh, still a problem. Let's change subjects. Can you give me um, a couple examples of your professional nonconformity? Um, well, I'll go back to when I got into this field and we started um, providing uh, mechanical hygiene services for our clients. The industry uh, was saying, for instance, that uh, line ductwork can't be cleaned. Can't be cleaned. Now, I came out, like you, out of the cleaning and sanitation industry. Uh, I know everything can be cleaned. It's just about. It's just a matter of how good, right? right, right. It's just about how, how how much. Now the question is, what's clean? Now, if we're talking of line ductwork, um, I remember mixing my own concoctions just because I was in the the, the, the chemical field. I, I you know I understood disinfectants, and I would uh, mix uh, polymer lockdown polymers with biocides, mm-hmm. and after source removal, which by the way, I, even when I got into ventilation cleaning back into the 80s, I knew the importance of um, source removal where everybody thought that they could, you know, blow and go and uh, stick it to the, to the surface and that would be hence clean because there were really no appropriate ways of dealing with ductwork, you know. Um, nobody thought of actually cutting it and vacuuming it, you know, but we actually did. The problem was is we were always more expensive than the fake guys out in the marketplace. And then, the, you know, the chemicals would make the place smell good for a week or two. The client would think that everything was great. But, you know, a month later, they'd be back to square one. Um, I already knew when I got into this field that uh, that um, uh, doing thorough approaches had to be it. And what we did is we stuck our face in the duct and we hit the walls and the sides and the tops of ductwork where most technology um, didn't do that. Um, so just that alone significantly improved air quality. And then what we would do is we saturate a, 
uh, a biocide mixed with a like a, a wetting agent that would uh, absorb into that liner, and then uh, the the non-toxic polymer would bind and lock down the fibers and encapsulate the spores to keep it out of the airstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly wasn't perfect, but uh, certainly uh, made a lot of my clients happy, and uh, we, we had lasting results out of it. So as everybody was saying it couldn't be done, I was doing it, and I was doing it with a, a great deal with success. Well, you know, it's interesting. I had a similar idea and actually have a patent that kind of uses – those two things, a lockdown agent and a pretty safe uh, antibacterial agent as well. Yeah, yeah, and we, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly removing it, replacing it is better, (laughs) you know, just like when we talk about mold remediation. You know, you still have people that practice mold remediation. Let me put it to you this way. How come, how come, where's this rule, for instance, that just because there was mold in the room, everything has to be cleaned or go 10 or foot or two away from the growth and all this stuff? Who made that rule? You know, know, if if you had cancer on your arm, you you would want them to to take the least out of that arm, not the most. So why can't we do it with with drywall? You know, I've, I've remediated drywall that was, uh, somewhat moldy, you know, and I have not had growth come back. There are studies that, that, that prove that, but, you know, you have the, the other side, the people who want to go extreme and don't want Zippo risk to uh, go to the extreme because they know they're covered, just like consultants practice that way, just like remediation contractors practice that way. Um, um, they'll take the risk, but they'll they'll want to do the whole nine yards. You know, just kind of like what happened at the Hilton um, Tower here. You know, speaking of the Hilton Tower, uh, that might be an example where expensive consultants devise expensive solutions. You know, it seems absolutely that... <laughs> okay. That that was the biggest travesty and the biggest IAQ mold remediation failure of our time. Uh, Any time that, that something costs that much and you have to go through that extreme, um, to me it's a failure. So um, I, I, I touched that job. Fortunately, I didn't get dragged into it. I think, um, I think by and far the initial people um, who I know and, uh, and, you know, I don't want to get into it too much. I don't want to rub salt in anybody's uh, wounds, but... Um, uh, and I and and I have a lot of intimacy with that job. I was the last guy to walk through that place for the contractors who got sued, and uh, I was appalled by what I saw because, see, you got to understand, Cliff. A lot of my field experience in mold came from um, uh, dealing with, uh, well, ni- uh, 92 in particular, Hurricane Iniki, which is the island of Kauai, mm-hmm. uh, damaged 90% of the island. I practically lived on that island for, 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 for four or five years, uh, cleaning up buildings, treating uh, structures, cleaning out ventilation systems, um, and then dealing with the repercussions later of people who didn't do anything and then had IAQ issues in their buildings and homes and things of that sort. And what I saw at the Hilton uh, kind of reminded me of what I saw at Her- after Hurricane Iniki, which isn't normal. So the first thing I said when I walked through that building is, is this is not normal. Somebody did, somebody really screwed up on this thing. 
And then I later looked into it, and I remember parts of that where, you know, that whole whole issue of that building initially started with furniture and mold showing up on new furniture. And, um, and then it escalated. And then, you know, when you do things wrong and when lawyers get involved and there's a, a shark fest, so to speak, and a class action suit, nobody wins. Nobody. And, and the truth never comes out, by the way, either, because it's all then about money. And uh, uh, everybody blew it on that job, in my opinion. And, uh, yeah, you start digging into walls, finding construction defects. I can go into any building anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. You start cutting into it, you'll find flaws and defects. But, you know, they tried to, they tried to make it seem like it all pointed to the ventilation system in that building, too. Some consultants said they pointed the building the wrong way. So, uh, you know, all sorts of, um, of, of experts, and um, what do they get? They get a $90 million rebuilt building, you know, that wasn't even flooded. How was that? All right. Not normal. I've got two questions, and then we're going to go to the roundtable. And the two questions that, that I've got are, first of all, is there anything that I didn't cover, anything that you'd like to add to our discussion today? Um. No, I'm actually, you know, it's early in the morning here. Uh, you caught me in my most verbal time. Uh, like I told you, my wife doesn't even like to be around me after I have this big, huge cup of coffee, you know, I'm sweating under the armpits. Uh, <laughs> we can cover um, uh, pretty much anything you uh, feel that we haven't uh, covered. Uh, and it seems like we've hit all the gamuts of... Uh, uh, philosophy and IAQ. Um, I, I think um, maybe one thing we can maybe touch on is uh, where we all feel the industry might be going, um, and uh, when uh, when this field finally becomes um, unitized, because I think the consensus in our field <clears throat> is that there's no consensus in our field. Um, uh, is is how long? Uh, maybe I'll throw it back to you. How long do you think that will take before? We have actually consensus in the field. I'm not sure that we're ever going to have consensus. I think, number one, people <laughs> have a tendency to disagree, and then you get financial interests and, uh, and and so on and so forth. What about green buildings, like lead buildings? What, what's your opinion on these? Um, well, green has always been something that I've always been very interested in. In fact, even with what we do as services, we've been – gearing more and more towards green, too. I mean, um, uh, by the, the methods we use, by not introducing uh, other products that we're not, you know, comfortable with. Um, you know, if I, if I look at a product and it's got skull and, bulb, uh, skull and crossbones on it, you know, I, there's no way I can justify putting a product, for instance, in a, in a building. Um, but um, I think the real issue is, is making buildings green but making them healthy. And I think that's really what we're still struggling to try to do in the, in the name of um, uh, low VOC products and um, uh, trying to reduce energy. Um, we still have to find a way to do all that and keep buildings healthy. And it pro probably is a more of a challenge in, in say, a place like Hawaii or uh, in Bermuda or Puerto Rico or any place that's hot and humid where, um, you know, moisture is really enemy number one in most cases to a lot of these, these buildings. And um, uh, if they start 
um, you know, uh, obviously they've come up with a lot of advances on um, HVAC systems to to uh, to keep buildings drier. Um, I think um, I think we still have a little ways to go, but uh, it, it seems like uh, that's where everything's going. And uh, soon buildings, I think, will be green and healthy, and that's a good place to be. How can our listeners get in touch with you and your company, Air Care Environmental Services Inc.? Uh, well, we, we 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 use those landline phones at uh, 808-593-9600. I can also be reached on uh, email at uh, initial uh, J and my last name, P R I N C E N T H A L at air a i r i a q dot com. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to go into the roundup now and. Uh, our guests are, you know, you have the the opportunity to ask us questions, and you know, we'll ask you questions, and we'll kind of end the show at that point. Sure. Okay, uh, let's go to Jason first. Uh, any questions or, or comments? Um, a comment would be as I'm, um, uh, you know, I'm uh, looking forward uh, and continue to look forward to new progress in the indoor air quality field. I'm uh, certainly um, um, uh, open to uh, everything and anything, and um, I think that um, all of us in the indoor air quality uh, field that uh, uh, are practitioners, if you will, and are out there trying to do the, the right and just thing for our clients um, uh, will take um, education and uh, keeping abreast of the, the field uh, seriously. And I know there's a lot of us out there that are like that. Um, uh, but as any growing field is, is uh, we, we, we certainly have to deal with the negative side, too, and uh, uh, hoping that uh, with uh, new technologies and advancements in the industry and, ed and more importantly, educating our, our, the consumer, um, this field will um, stand out as being a very important uh, and uh, um, important industry that uh, is up and coming and will continue to be up and coming for years to come. Joe. I've got a uh, comment and a question. <clears throat> the first comment is that you talked a little bit about green buildings, and I just want to let listeners know that uh, the U.S. Green Buildings Council, I believe, is in the middle of revising some of their uh, leadership in energy and environmental design lead program requirements and the first reviews that I've seen from some of the people in the IEQ industry indicate that they have actually um, put less emphasis on indoor environmental quality as a part of the point system, and I'd like to alert listeners to that and let them know that those, you know, those changes are being made and they are taking comments and that I think that it's important that our industry make comments and let them know that we feel that IEQ should be not only uh, 
at least as important as it was, but maybe even more important. Uh, the second thing I wanted to ask, I mean, we talked about the fact that, you know, Jason, you do some some somewhat different uh, techniques, and I'm curious about the use of uh, wet cleaning techniques. I've been experimenting with uh, a protocol, actually, that Cliff was responsible for developing. It's called, they call it the Pittsburgh Protocol. We actually use wet cleaning. Um, have you used anything like that where we, you know, we're actually finding it's pretty successful? Uh, wet cleaning on porous surfaces, are you talking about? On semi-porous. Semi-porous. On, um, on um, structural wood, um, you know, on floods in basements, floods mm -hmm. in structural wood, where, you know, it's, uh, it's been a pretty successful process. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure I specifically understand exactly the method you're talking about, but um, uh, I, to me, I mean, uh, it would make sense. Um, um, are you referring to um, ways, uh, practices of wetting something and then cleaning it and then drying it quick enough to where it's not going to create a problem? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, you know, those are techniques that we've kind of implemented over time um, ourselves. Um, uh, and, um, again, it comes probably from my, uh, well, from the days when, you know, you had to actually think for, to, because there was no, nothing available. I mean, there, you know, I remember the days where I thought copper sulfate was the best thing to use to control mold, and it's toxic as hell, you know. Um, so, um uh, I think uh, over time we will find ways um, uh, in different ways. And, and as long as we can think flexibly uh, and the science community can come together with the common sense community, the two merging together will find solutions. Um, and, uh, again, I, I, I have to stress that for me, I think really the, the, the focus that's never really addressed is how we can do things cost effectively. Um, you, know, uh, you know, with anything that we do. I mean, everybody wants to do something. Uh, I've never had a client that says, hey, listen, well, I, don't get me wrong. I have clients that will tell me because I've worked with them so long and they trust my, my abilities and my company's abilities. They'll just tell me, hey, whatever you think it needs to be done, you, you do what you think needs to be done. Do whatever it takes. Uh, that's a good place to be, and I don't jeopardize those relationships for nothing for, because for me in particular, my reputation is everything, particularly here on an island. So I've always thought out of the box, and um, I always wanted to find better ways of spending my clients' money. And um, if I can find that way, I, I, will, I will certainly do that. Um, if it's not and doesn't make sense or there's too much risk, depending on the circumstances, you can rest assured I won't. So my clients know I'm there to protect them. And I think that's, that's, that to me is the, the, the best way to practice this field, at least for me anyhow. Well, I've got an email from Joe that Dieter had to go, so what I'll do is I'll jump in, I guess, with, with my comments. I'm looking for a time when things are going to get simpler. You know, we need simpler terminology. We need to get back to basics. You know, oftentimes the best solutions are simple, common sense, inexpensive. 
and, and really the value of nonconformity and in indoor air quality. If everyone thought alike, we really wouldn't make a whole lot of progress. It's people that think out of the box <laughs> right. and, and question and, and so on and so forth. Well, at this point, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Links to IQ Radio are available at iaqtraining.com and unsmoke.com webpages. If you're interested in American Indoor Air Quality Council certified training or customized training programs, please visit the iaqtraining.com website or contact joe.use at iaqtraining.com. This is Cliff Slotnick saying thank you to our guest, Jason uh, Prensenthal. Uh, Jason Mahalo, thank you very much for being with us today. Our co-host, thank you. Our, uh, co-host Radio Joe Hughes, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wiles, and the wingman, Chris Boisel. But most importantly to you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us next Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time for the next broadcast of IEQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.